Well, good morning, everyone. So let me open this with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into Second Peter. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you as always for this class. Lord, I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for the opportunity we have to share one another's burdens and to pray for one another. And I thank you, Lord, for the time we have to study your word. I pray that as we go through, begin to go through this portion of text from Second Peter, that you will use it to encourage us and to convict us and to remind us of the hope we have in you because of the truth you've given to us. Lord, the world is hostile to you. It's hostile to your truth. But I thank you that you've given us your word, which tells us to ignore the testimony of the world and accept the testimony of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text this morning is really a transition text in Second Peter. The last time we were together, we were covering the verses where Peter was reminding his hearers of things. And he said, I'm going to remind you, and I'm going to remind you, and I'm going to remind you. Peter was approaching his death. He knew he was going to die soon, but he said, as long as I've got breath, I'm going to be reiterating the truth, the truth, the truth. Peter's focus, I think, for Second Peter, in the big picture, is the same as First Peter, which is the holiness of God's children. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, you've heard me read it countless times. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I'm convinced that's the focus of Peter, that's the focus of all the apostles, is on the holiness of God's children. But he, in 2 Peter, is really emphasizing the need to live out that holiness in light of the truth. Certainly he alluded to those things in 1 Peter, but in 2 Peter he's really hammering home the centrality of the Word of God because of the fact that he's going to be addressing all the false teachers that are trying to lead people astray. And so even at the beginning of the letter, and I'm going to be preaching on this tonight, at the beginning of the verses, in verses 3 and 4, he's talking about what God has already given us has already given us, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So Peter really begins and grounds them in the Word of God, the promises of God, the knowledge of God, and that was what he was saying in verse 12, I'll always be ready to remind you of these things. And then as he gets to this portion of Scripture, he begins to address head-on the false teachers. Now, as we get to the beginning of chapter 2, he calls names, so to speak, not literal names, but he's makes it clear that he's dealing with false teachers. Chapter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So he's going to deal with that head-on, but he begins to deal with it implicitly in the verses that we're going to cover over the next two weeks. That's verses 16 to 21. So follow along with me while I read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What Peter is doing here, as we will see as we begin to study this, is he's really contrasting what the false teachers are doing and what true teachers are doing. And he's really validating the message that he has already preached, that the apostles have already given. If you think about it, he's saying, I'm going to remind you of these things. I'll remind you of these things. As long as I'm here, I'm going to remind you of these things. He's now showing them with proof that these things are true. They're real and they matter. So I came up with a simple outline that I think tracks with what Peter is saying, and it's two facts validating the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two facts validating the truth of what the apostles have taught. And the first fact is this. It's the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. It's the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. We'll see this in verses 16 to 18. But Peter is making a powerful argument in those verses about the truth. And he makes that argument both negatively and positively. He says what they weren't saying and what they are saying, or, or what they weren't doing and what they are doing. And by using the word for, for we do not follow, he's just talking back of all the apostolic teaching, all the teaching that he began reminding them of, of the faith they have, of the righteousness they have in Jesus Christ. And he's saying... All of those things that we've already told you are true. And he says it this way. The negative is this, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. By using the word we, Peter is talking about the apostles. Now we'll see from the context of these verses that the primary eyewitnesses to the specific, unique historical event that he's going to talk about were three of them. James and John, the brothers, the sons of thunder, and Peter. But their witness was the teaching of all of the apostles. This was the apostolic doctrine. And while I mentioned that this is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's about a component of the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us hope. That component being that Jesus is going to come again. That he rose, ascended into heaven, but he's going to come again. He's going to establish his reign and rule on the earth. There is hope for all believers because Jesus one day will come again and that belief was under attack. So Peter is contrasting their teaching, their doctrine with that of the false teachers when he says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. 
Now, some versions translate it exactly what it is. It's myths. Cleverly devised myths. And cleverly devised is just human wisdom, human concoctions. And the word myth as it was used there is like what we think of myths. At least when I was in school, and I assume it's the case for most of you, we studied Greek mythology and Roman mythology. It was the story of heroes. It was the story of the gods and what they did. The heroes did this. The gods did this. And they were simply a collection of human wisdom. Now, we understand, because we are theologically minded, it's human wisdom influenced by the lies of Satan. It's always interesting. I I don't try and explain this. But I can remember, and I wasn't saved when I was in junior high, but we started studying Greek mythology in junior high, and for some reason, and I assume the Lord was working in my little heart, even though I wouldn't be saved till many years later, I remember thinking, as we were studying this, if I was Satan, these are exactly the kind of stories I would create, because when Jesus came later, they would cast doubt on Jesus. Peter is saying, look, this is not what we're telling you. We didn't make up stories. We we didn't come up and concoct these things. These aren't fabrications. In other words, we're not doing to you what the false teachers are doing to you. Paul had to deal with this issue. For example, in 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4, he gave this instruction to young Timothy. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on a deficit... Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And yet, what he knows, what Peter knows, is what Paul knew. Not only do false teachers propagate this, but there are people in churches that want to hear it. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So Peter could not be painting a bigger contrast. He's already assured them of all that they have in Jesus Christ and he says, I'm going to keep reminding you of these things and he's telling them, these things aren't just fairy tales. We're not making this stuff up. And that's why he continues in verse 16. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And this really gets to the heart of the issue in terms of the validity of what Peter is saying. He's using a specific historical reference to make clear that he and the apostles are speaking the truth, not cleverly devised myths. But we've got to look through these words a little bit because while he's pointing backwards to a specific and unique and real historical event that occurred and said, I witnessed that, we witnessed that, that event is actually proof of something that will happen in the future that the false teachers are saying don't pay attention to. So he says, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he's talking here, if we just cursor, a cursory reading in English, we could think that's talking about when Jesus came the first time in the incarnation. Certainly he had powers and working miracles and calming the storm. 
and he came to the earth. But that's not the word that's being used here. In fact, the context will be very clear when we get to the next verse. But the word coming here is always pointing to the second coming. Certainly Jesus showed a certain amount of power, but that's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about when Jesus will come again in real power. And he says, when we taught you about the future second coming, when Jesus comes in power, we're not making up stories. He's talking about what he would have learned from Jesus himself. For example, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 and 30. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said this, talking about the future, but immediately after the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That, that's what Peter is talking about when he says the power and coming. He's talking about that future day and he's telling you, look, When we told you about that, we're not just making up stories about something. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And as you could see and probably already know from me reading the text, he's talking about the event that we refer to as the transfiguration. When three of the apostles went up on the mountain with Jesus and something spectacular happened. In that unique, miraculous moment, the three apostles, James, John, and Peter, got to see Jesus in the glory that would be his, that is his, and will be his. The glory that was generally hidden during the incarnation when Jesus walked around as a humble servant, but that is not hidden anymore. And Peter's saying, look, we were there. We saw what Jesus will be. We know it's true because we got to experience a foretaste of it ourselves. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such another utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now the event that Peter is describing is recorded in three of the Gospels. It's recorded in Matthew, it's recorded in Mark, and it's recorded in Luke. And as I'll say later, it's not recorded as a specific historical event in the Gospel of John. But John acknowledged that if he reported on everything that he had seen, it would fill all the books of the earth. But John did allude to this event when they saw the glory of Jesus. And again, this is before Jesus died. This is before he rose again. This is a different event. But I'm going to read the account that's in Matthew. So if you want to turn to Matthew, it's in Matthew chapter 17. And I'm going to read the first eight verses. Matthew chapter 17 the first eight verses. But again, it's, there's an account in Mark and there's an account in Luke as well. I just happen to choose the one from Matthew for our purposes. Beginning at verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother 
and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Now I can read and reread this account, which I've done for many years. And there's a reason we call it the Mount of Transfiguration, because Jesus was transfigured. But I cannot comprehend what that must have been like. As I even try and imagine it in my mind, my brain doesn't go there. I can't imagine part of this, and it's the part that's not even emphasized in our text this morning, which is they saw Moses. They saw Elijah. Now, Elijah never died. He went straight to heaven, but Moses died. And here he is walking around. Obviously, proof of the fact that the saints of God are alive. They're not dead. But I can't even imagine that. And I don't know how Peter knew who they were, but he did. Something about them was recognizable. And there were no pictures of Moses and Elijah anywhere. They didn't have cameras. But something about it was so profound that they knew. And yet, that's not the most amazing thing. The amazing thing is Jesus went up on the mountain and he would have looked like us and suddenly he showed his glory. It's likely that the cloud, the bright cloud, was the kind of glory of God the Father, but Jesus' face shone like the sun. I can't, I don't have any frame of reference. I've never seen that. I don't know what it is. His clothes were white, shining. I can imagine that in and of itself was a, was a showstopper. I think Peter's talking about building three tents because he didn't know what else to say and he's just not going to be quiet. I can identify with that. You've got to fill the gap. But then for the Shekinah glory to come over and then to hear the voice of God speak, I can imagine why they were terrified. But they experienced it. They were standing there. They saw it with their eyes. They heard it with their ears. They saw the very glory of God. So when he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, yes, they saw what Jesus is and what he will be when he returns on the clouds. They saw it. He's saying, look, we're not making up stories. We were there. We saw him. He already is this. He's going to be this. And what they heard with their ears was God's approval of his son. 
says he received honor and glory from God the Father. Those words, the utterance they heard was that. They saw the honor. They saw the glory. They saw the majesty. And they heard God say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. They were there. They saw it. It's interesting, when you first read those words, if you didn't know everything else was about the Mount of Transfiguration, you could be forgiven for thinking they were talking about Jesus' baptism because God said the same thing then. Matthew three sixteen and 17, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Both, of course, are testimony of God's approval of his son. But as Jesus baptized, he still, he was always the God-man, but he wasn't in his glory. He was just walking into the waters of the Jordan. Whereas on the mountain, he was seen in his glory. So again, this is Peter's contrast. People are always making up stories about God. In our lifetime, we've seen countless people make up stories about God, doing all kinds of crazy things. If you remember back in the 90s, I was living in California when all these people committed suicide in a wealthy area of San Diego because Haley's Comet was going by and they knew the Heaven's Gate group is what they were called. There are always people making up things. Peter's saying, what you are believing and what you're hearing isn't anything like that. It's true. Peter says this isn't a make-believe fairy tale. We saw it. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. God the Father attests to his honor and glory. And we were there. I said that the Gospel of John doesn't record the account, but I think it alludes to the account in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And all of these things, and the teaching of the apostles, the eyewitnesses are why the writer of Hebrews could say in Hebrews chapter 1, and I'll just read the first part of verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. Peter's saying, all of this is real, and I know it's real because we were there. We were eyewitnesses. Verse 18, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. It's reliable, it's trustworthy, it's true because we saw it, we experienced it. And while they didn't initially share it with the other apostles, I don't doubt that by the time that Peter was writing this letter to the church, every apostle knew about this. They would be attesting to it. These were Things unlike anything anyone had ever experienced. And Peter's teaching this truth, and he's reminding them of this truth, and he's saying, look, this isn't just me, this is the apostolic witness. And he's having to do this because he knows unbelieving false teachers are going to spread lies, and some of those lies are going to be saying Jesus isn't returning. 
You're fools to wait for Jesus to come back. He's not coming back. I say that because that's exactly what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It's a familiar phrase because ultimately it eventually will lead into with God a day is like a thousand years. But the context is this in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, there were already going to be false teachers and Peter knew it. No doubt because of God's instructing him, he knew it that people were going to deny that Jesus was coming again. It's interesting because he said this 2,000 years ago. You hear it even more now because it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come back. So Christians are viewed as foolish for sitting around waiting for something that surely it's not really going to happen. Satan always wants to attack Jesus Christ. That's the central focus of his attack. Cast doubt on the word of God. And he's inspired some teachers, obviously, because Peter was going to address them later, to attack the issue of, is Jesus really going to come again? Peter is establishing, yes, it's true because we saw what Jesus will be like. We know it's true. It's going to happen. But the false teacher is going to say, prove it. Not here. Look around. Everything keeps going like it's always gone. I think you guys are full of baloney. It's the lies of Satan. Something about attacking our future hope is integral to Satan's plan. To get our eyes off the future hope, he cast out about the future hope. He cast out about the future a lot. God promises one thing for the future. Satan says, no, 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 that's not true. That's what happened in the garden. God said, if you eat from this tree, you'll die. And Satan's like, you won't die. In fact, it'll be better for you. Christians are taught that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, that Jesus is going to return. Satan's like, no, that's not true. 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 18, some of the false teachers by name that are again tacking the future hope of believers. Paul gives this warning, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 18, for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. There are always false teachers that are destroying the hope that believers have in the promises of God. And Peter's saying, I'm cutting through all that. That's not what you believe. That's not what we've taught. We're teaching the truth. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. Satan wants to say, it's not true. It's not real. And Peter says, I beg to differ. I can tell you we were experiencing it. We were there. It's real. Jesus will come again. Jesus will return in all his glory. And there will be a judgment. It's interesting, when you look at our current world, for whatever reason, the impact of the word of God is diminishing every day. 
certainly in our culture at large, you could go back in time. There was a time where there was at least cultural lip service to biblical values. You watch old TV shows from the 50s and 60s, secular shows, and you see that. But that day's long since gone, and we know it. What concerns me, though, is not the world, because I think it's just getting set up for God's judgment. As the hardening and the turning from God is just building up God's wrath to pour out, the danger to me is that the church is losing the hope. There are believers that start to doubt. And Peter's words would not be beating you over the head. Peter's words would be a reminder that, look, the Bible is true. The apostolic teaching is true. You do have a hope. I can't think of anything that believers need nowadays more than hope. This world is terrible. You can't read anything without seeing depravity and wickedness on scales that I can't imagine. Now, there's nothing new under the sun, so these things always existed, but they've never been portrayed and elevated and put out for us to see at any time on videos extolling evil for good. So as believers, I think a word like this is so important to us because we can get overwhelmed with the darkness that's all around us in our culture and lose sight of the fact that we have a hope in the midst of all these storms. And it's not a hope based on fairy tales or made-up things like Joseph Smith finding some kind of mystery goggles in somewhere or somebody believing that they are going to fly on a comet. We have the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, and it's true, they were there. We can believe it. And next week, we're going to see more of this hope. I'm not going to start this section. And I was toying with it, but I can't finish it, so I decided let's just keep these two points separate. But the second fact, I'll go ahead and tell you what it is, the second fact validating the truth of the gospel message is the God-breathed testimony of Scripture. The God-breathed testimony of Scripture. And I'll read these verses because... They're familiar to many of us, particularly if you've ever been asked to come up with a verse that proves things are true. But there's the context for it. And this is great hope. Verse 19, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter's really going to give a one-two punch to contrast and to validate his message. One, we saw this. We didn't make it up. But two, God promised it. And if God promised it, it is going to come to pass. It's true. So, that will be where we start next week. Let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the apostles, these fallible men that you gave a unique privilege to be your eyewitnesses. Lord, I thank you that they accurately, by the power of your Holy Spirit, recorded for us valid and true accounts of what they actually saw. 
But Lord, I also thank you for all of the authors of Scripture. Lord, we have 66 books as we reference them. And these are men that didn't just make up things. You guided every word that we have. Lord, your word is under assault. The things you say about sin and death and judgment are mocked and ridiculed by our culture. Lord, help us not fall into doubt. Help us, Lord, as we study these verses to be encouraged, to be built up and strengthened, being reminded that we don't follow cleverly devised myths, tales, but we believe the truth as revealed by you. Lord, help us to live out the truth. Help us to be bold witnesses for you and help us to use the truth in the midst of this dark and perverse generation to fulfill your calling on each one of our lives. Lord, we love you and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all. I look forward to next week.